however, we give our attention to Genesis chapter 47, beginning in verse 13. We're reading from the ESV. Hear now God's word. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we, with our land, will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them, and therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, a seed for the field and food for yourselves and your household and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me die with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Let's pray together. Father, now we're going to pause and give attention to this text. Some of it uh, is, is a little it's strange to us. Uh, there are customs, there are events that we're not used to. This is not how we live. It's not how we operate. And so we pray this morning for clarity of speech. We pray for clarity of thought. And Lord, we would ask that uh, your spirit would be present among us and give not only understanding, but Father, also 
show us the beauty of the redemptive work that you have wrought through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray this now in his name. Amen. It's a matter of life and death. When we hear those words said, say in a medical drama on television, while we're watching an old episode of the Perry Mason television program, or in the chambers of Sherlock Holmes at 21B Baker Street, we find ourselves immediately drawn into the story that's about to be told. Our text for this morning seems like a rather strange hodgepodge of unrelated events. A bit of narrative housekeeping Moses must do to start wrapping up the Joseph story. We know the book ends in chapter 50. We know that everyone is safely in Egypt, and now it's time to start landing the plane. But it's not that at all. You see, this, too, is a story of life and death. It's a text that reminds us that our living and dying are intimately related. What we value and cling to in life will shape and mold how we face death. Let me say that again. What we value and cling to in life will shape and mold how we view death. Jacob's life, we learn, is coming to an end. It's almost funny that in this time of widespread famine in the text, Moses draws our attention to the dying wishes of one man. And we know that Moses is too good a writer for this to be an accident. So what is it that Moses wants us to see? What are we to learn? Well, it's your big idea in your outline this morning. It's also on the screen in front of you. It's this, until the new heavens and new earth, the people of God must hold fast to the promises of God in life and death. Until the new heavens and new earth, the people of God must hold fast to the promises of God in life and in death. Three points we want to make this morning. The first one is this. Sadly, this is the best we can hope for. Sadly, this is the best we can hope for. Joseph finds himself now at a stage in his rise to power in which he must administrate all the grain that he has stockpiled. It was easy at first. You need grain, we'll sell it to you. But as the famine continues and as the famine is severe, and it's interesting, isn't it? In verse 13, Moses uses the word, the land languishes by reason of famine. And so we see this very interesting progression. They come and give money for grain. When the money's gone, they come and they give all of their livestock for grain. And then when the money's gone and the livestock is gone, they offer their land and themselves. And did you note the, the, the reason that they give? Look at verse 19. Why should we die before your eyes? both we and our land. Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. Now, I think 
probably the thing that we find most shocking is that Joseph takes them up on their offer. I mean, we understand this transaction of money for goods and services. We understand when you're out of money, you can barter with something else, and livestock really was the way in which wealth was kept in the ancient world. And so, yeah, we'll take, we'll take livestock. But to then turn around and offer yourself as slaves or servants, and the land on which you live, well, that's an entirely different deal altogether. And friends, this is where the story gets a little wonky. What are we supposed to do with this? Are we supposed to think it's a good thing that the people people offer themselves up as slaves to Pharaoh, that they're willing to give up their land, and that Joseph took them up on their deal? Did you note, too, earlier in the story, um, we're told that Joseph brought all the money into Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. So what do we do with this? It's interesting, older commentators like John Calvin point out that Joseph is a very wise and benevolent ruler. He's not going to let his subjects die. Isn't that great? But we read it through very different lenses. We read it as 21st century Americans who believe that we are given certain inalienable rights by our creator, and among them our life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So this is a really rotten deal that the people are forced into making. And who does Joseph really think he is? I mean, the people are going to, this is a humanitarian crisis. Why are you trying to profit in the midst of this global humanitarian crisis? This isn't good governance. Joseph isn't wise and benevolent. Joseph is a robber baron. Well, both of those ideas demonstrate something to us that's hard, I think, at times to wrap our hands around. See, this particular passage shows us the limits of human government to deal with the totality of the fall. When you have things like famine, you have things like slavery. When you have things like worldwide diseases, we would love to think, wouldn't we, that somehow human beings and human governments can come together and we can figure this out and we can just make it better. But we can't always. You see, friends, the fall is all pervasive. The fall impacts and affects every aspect of our life as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And the fall is so pronounced and so comprehensive that it transcends our ability to govern over and against it. In other words, this particular story points us to the great need for the reign of King Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. I think it's interesting that in uh, Revelation chapter 22 and Revelation chapter 21, we're told that the new Jerusalem comes down, there's the new heavens and the new earth, 
And then in chapter 22, we're told that the tree of life that we once saw in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life is suddenly back. And I love the way that John puts it. He says that the leaves on the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Not for the healing of you and I as individuals. But this idea that the widespread impact of the fall, the way the fall is felt, it transcends just you and I as individuals. No, it impacts the societies in which we live. It impacts the world in which we find ourselves. And no human government is wise enough and powerful enough or benevolent enough to be able to deal with all that life in a fallen world is going to bring us. Several years ago, when a new president was elected to much uh, fervor and acclaim, uh, one of the president's, uh, a person who voted for the president quite energetically from the interview uh, was asked about what this meant and Weren't they excited? And what was the, what did they think the implications of all this was going to be? And the person was just, just glowing and the words were just vomiting out of her mouth. Uh, She said, you know, I don't have to worry about my rent anymore. I don't have to worry about my groceries anymore. I don't have to worry about how I'm going to put gas in my car. He's going to take care of all of it. Now, as Christians, we know that's not true. Friends, the kind of utopia at times that we envision, the kind of utopia that we would love, the kind of utopia that John Lennon talks about in his song, Imagine. It's not possible in this life. See, we read this text and we know, hey, this, okay, it's great. They're not going to die. That's good. You know, uh, Joseph doesn't tell them, let them eat cake. But at the same time, look at what all these people, look at what they, they have to become slaves to Pharaoh and give up everything just to get the food they need in time of famine. Well, if that sticks in your gut, understand it's supposed to. Because it's supposed to point us to a kingdom that's yet to come. The new heavens and the new earth under the reign of King Jesus. Secondly, we learn here there's always been a clear delineation. There's always been a clear delineation. It's it's a bit strange the transition that Moses makes. In verse 26, we're told that the priests uh, don't have to give up their stuff because Pharaoh's supporting them, so that's good. Uh, but then in 27, we get, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen. Okay, so think of it this way. If you're looking at a map of Egypt, Israel is up in the northeast corner. It's good pasture land. It's a place where the Nile floods. And it's right there, basically right on the border. It's not a long trip to get back to the promised land to Canaan. And they're largely separate from the larger cities that the pharaohs have built. So there they are. Uh, They're living in this place separate from everyone else. And Moses tells us they gained possessions in it and they were fruitful and they multiplied greatly. Well, why does he include that? 
I want you to note that there's a contrast that Moses is pointing us towards. The people of Egypt are languishing by reason of the famine. And the people of Israel are being fruitful and multiplying greatly. Folks in Egypt are giving up everything that they once called their own, including themselves. And the children of Israel are gaining possessions. And they are multiplying. So Moses is painting for us a picture in which the people of God are geographically, ethnically, economically, and vocationally different from their neighbors. In other words, he's drawing our attention to the fact that there's a very clear delineation between those who are the people of God and those who are not. In the New Testament text that Abby read for us this morning, it's interesting uh, because in Peter uses the word exile quite a bit. Did you note that? That as she read, Peter urges us as sojourners and exiles to live then in a particular way, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. See, there's a delineation now, just as there was then, but the delineation is not on the basis of geography, ethnicity, vocation, or economics. No, the delineation now between those who are the people of God and those who are not is a delineation of godly character. That's what Peter is calling the church to. Listen again to what he says in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, this is not about ethnicity. It's not about where you live. It's not about what you do or how much money you have. It's about how you are living your life. It's about godly conduct. When I was uh, working for a missions organization and traveling a lot, um, I, I, I got to the point where I kind of liked the travel and then I kind of got weary of it. And there were certain scenarios when I was traveling that would absolutely set alarm bells off in my head. Uh, and one of them was if I was traveling uh, with um, American college-age young women because they're annoying. And they are horribly entitled. No offense to those of you who are college-age young women who may or may not have blue hair. I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm just spitballing here. Uh, one flight, I, I was seated in the exit row because there's extra leg room, and I was on the aisle, which was good. All of my miles got me. That's the upgrade it got me. And I was just, I, I knew it was going to be bad because then there are these two college girls who are on their way to Amsterdam for spring break, which is never a good idea. Uh, they come and they sit down. Uh, as we were reminded once coming back, uh, uh, someone 
lovingly reminded Amy and I uh, that the devil lives in Amsterdam. And so why you would want to go visit there, I don't know. Uh, but so here are these two college girls and they come in and they're decked out in their, you can tell they're American college girls by what they're wearing. And they come in and they sit down and, and, uh, and it just got awful. Uh, they were rude to the flight attendants. Uh, they, they kept asking for all, I mean, it was just, it was bad. And so finally at one point, and I, I got to the point where I would put on my noise canceling headphones and put on my mask and just sort of lean back and kind of go to my happy place. Uh, but I, I feel this tap and it's the senior flight attendant and he comes up to me and he's like, uh, I need to talk to these ladies. And he basically reads them the riot act and moves them to the back of the plane. It's like, look, we, we need to be able to trust the fact that, you know, you're actually going to do what we tell you to. And you both are annoying and you're a pain and there's no way you would ever do anything we ask you to do. So we're going to move you. Well, that particular trip, I was headed to Kenya. And if you think about a difference in geography, ethnicity, vocation or economics, you're going to be hard pressed to find a group of people that are more different from a highly educated American pastor slash missionary to our friends in Kenya, many of whom cannot read. And yet, the minute I was among them, do you know what my, uh, what my, my realization was? I have more in common with them in Christ than I do with these two snotty college girls who are from the same place or the same ethnicity, probably roughly the same socioeconomic bracket. Why? Well, because there is within the people of God this clear delineation that when we bow the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and when we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, there is a kind of character and a kinship that is created that is unlike anything the world ever will know. See, what was true in Genesis chapter 47 about the people of God is true for us as well. But the delineation is not geographical. It's not ethnic. It's not socioeconomic. It's not vocational. No, it's a question about the indwelling presence of God's Spirit. It's a question about the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, tie your living and dying to the promises of God. Tie your living and dying to the promises of God. Well, Moses tells us how Israel is faring in their new homeland, and then he immediately jumps from that to letting us know how old Jacob is. Now, we've seen this before in the book of Genesis. It's letting us know about the different generations that are coming. And so we are somewhat expecting this bit of biographical information about Jacob. And we're told in verse 29 that when the time is drawing near for him to die, he calls his son to him and says, look, I need you to swear me something. And I, in fact, we're really going to, this is like past double dog or pinky swearing. Uh, this is hardcore. I want you to put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. 
And this is the old man's dying request. He says, do not bury me in Egypt, verse 30, but let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. Now, we're left to wonder why in the world, if his family is in Egypt, if his beloved son is in Egypt, if his life in which uh, his entire family is being fruitful and multiplying and flourishing, if all of that is in Egypt, why in the world does Jacob want to be buried in Canaan? Why would he make the family caravan and travel in this way to take his remains back? I mean, I've thought about this. You know, sometimes people will ask, well, where, where do you think you want to be buried? Well, uh, I'm dead. I'm pretty sure I won't care. And yet Jacob cares greatly about where it is that he's to be buried. So why? Why? Is there something significant going on here? Or because he's an old man and he's 147 years old, he's just a bit cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and making this one last really strange dying request. Well, friends, understand that Jacob's request for his body to be taken back to the burying place of his fathers is an act of faith. This is a declaration that the God of his fathers is going to keep his word and he's going to keep his promises. You see, God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would possess the land. And so Jacob saying to Joseph, I want you to take me back there and I want you to bury me in the burying place of my fathers. It's the equivalent of, it, this is his sort of Babe Ruth moment, right? I'm going to just point because that's where it's going to end up. And so by faith, Jacob is saying, Joseph, take me back there because that's where God has promised that we're going to be. By faith, I want to understand, I want you to know that I want to be buried there because my God is faithful. And someday that's where we're going to be. So by faith, Jacob is calling his shot. By faith, Jacob is tying both his living and now his dying to the promises of God. In the book of Hebrews, we learn that when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are doing their sojourning and when uh, when the writer of Hebrews tells us that they're looking for a home, they're looking for a city, but it wasn't an earthly city. See, we understand that this longing to be buried in the place of his fathers isn't just about going back to a particular place, but it's about a longing for heaven. It's about a longing, the writer of Hebrews tells us, for that heavenly city, the one that will never go away. It's this longing for a home. And Jacob, by faith, is going to tie his living and his dying to God's promise of a home for his people. A couple weeks ago, I did the funeral of an acquaintance of mine. 
um, actually two friends of mine from high school got married. Her father died. I met him on one occasion. That was it. And I don't know if I'm just getting old and cranky, probably, or if I'm getting wiser in this. I'm not sure. But uh, I start every funeral now, particularly with someone I don't know, by saying, listen, if you reach a particular age, you've preached your own funeral. The people who know you, the people who love you, they know what was important to you. They know what your life was about. And so my task uh, in, in a funeral is not to preach anyone into some place or preach someone out of some place. Uh, no, my task at a funeral is simply to ask questions that we don't really like to ask because we like to pretend as a culture that death doesn't really exist. We move from there then to, you know, Jesus spoke at a funeral once. Didn't stay a funeral for very long, but he did. Friends, the reason it's true that you preach your own funeral is that our living and dying is inexorably linked together. You can't dismiss it. No one could have stood up at Mother Teresa's funeral and said, you know, that girl just lived for a good time. She was the life of the party. In the same way, uh, no one could have stood up, for example, at Hugh Hefner's funeral and say, you know, that was a guy that had a deep and abiding love and respect for women. Our living and our dying are inexorably linked together. And Genesis 47 calls us as God's people to tie those two things to the promises of a God who is faithful. He shows us his faithfulness this morning by giving us a tangible reminder of his presence with us. And not just his his, uh, presence, but also his promises. He gives us the gift of a table that points us to the new heavens and the new earth. He calls us to a meal that reminds us there is a meal that is yet to come. And in the bread and in the wine, the Lord Jesus is spiritually present with his people. And we are reminded of that most basic and great covenant promise. I am your God. You are my people. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your promises. Father, we would ask, uh, as those who recognize and understand that we are preaching our own funerals and that our living and our dying are inexorably tied together, Father, would we do so uh, relying and leaning into and seeking to live out faithfully the promises that you give for us in your word? For we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.